1: We welcome everybody out there in listening land, and thanks to all of you for making the 118th punch of Scoring at the Movies podcasting action a part of your December day. Every other Thursday morning, we scurry back into the sports movie past to review and to spoil the interesting films we find there. I'm the bridge-building longtime resident of Sweetwater Prison, who's doing a stretch for... Well, I don't want to talk about it. Ryan Ellis. And here's the newcomer to the Hooskow, who's far bigger than me, but
0: does obey London prize rules... Christy Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. And before we get started, I feel it's only fair to you to warn you that if you ask me any personal questions during this podcast, I will flip this table and rage out on you. And punch me. Well, thankfully, you did install these protective bars between us, so you'll be okay. Now, you call this the 118th punch of this podcast. I guess it's equally good that we decided to podcast wearing gloves, because otherwise we might have knocked each other out in the first one or two episodes if we followed the bare-knuckle podcasting ethos that Peter Falk would want from us. They talked about that, and then they're not bare-knuckled. Did I miss something? Peter Falk is like the crime boss, I guess, Mm -hmm. that runs this boxing racket or something. Like Capone, he's in jail for tax evasion. Yeah. And he set up the fight, or at least he made sure that the fight went ahead But in return, he had a set of rules that he demanded they follow, one of which was going to be that it had to be a bare-knuckle bout for some reason. It's never really explained why he wanted that initially. But then one of the fighters or one of the handlers for the fighters, whether it was Fisher Stevens or the other guy, said, we can do that, but have you ever seen any old film of bare-knuckle boxing? It's like one or two punches and somebody's knocked out. If you want a fight, they need to be wearing some kind of gloves, because otherwise it's going to be a short-ass boxing match. Right. And eventually Peter Falk said, oh, you're right. I want to see action. I want to see fists flying. So you'll wear gloves, but he says you'll wear six-ounce gloves. And then when the fight starts... They don't look smaller. They don't really look smaller, do they? But when the fight starts, you hear the ring announcers say specifically, these are six-ounce gloves. These aren't the usual big-ass gloves you're used to. So we're going to see some real damage, right? Because I guess if you wear tiny, thin gloves, you're going to tear up your opponent more than if they're more padded. Yeah. I didn't see any more damage as a result of wearing these small gloves than we saw in a Rocky movie, for example. True. In fact, a lot less, I think.
1: Of course, Wesley Snipes' character, Monroe Hutchin, Monroe Undisputed Hutchin, was a boxer before he went to jail, and George Iceman Chambers was, until very recently, the champ. 47-0.
0: and They're
1: both undefeated,
0: exactly. 46-0-1 or something, I think, was Iceman. Why didn't they just give him 47-0? 47 knockouts. Why did they have 46-0-1 split decision or something? You've already got an insanely unbelievable record attached to this character. Just give him the perfect record. Maybe
1: it's supposed to be this controversy that he had at least one non-win because, of course, of the myth that they call it with him losing in prison. Uh... But I was going to say these two guys wouldn't be very experienced with taking punishment. And that's one thing that I think someone like Mike Tyson would have experienced as well, because he didn't really have to take that many hits until he started taking hits. And was he as good at that as he was at dishing it out? You could say no one is, but some guys, well, you mentioned Rocky. One of the things that Rocky could do is take, Or Homer Simpson (laughs) could take more punishment than anybody else. (laughs) But when you're as good as these guys are, or Muhammad Ali, I don't have a mark on my face. Right. And maybe one of the reasons why Muhammad Ali went downhill as a boxer, and then look what happened to him with the Parkinson's and everything else, is because when he finally started taking hits...
0: He wasn't used to it. He didn't have to do that through most of his young career. I think that's fair. I would expect Ving Raimss character to be the one that might be like the tank, the guy able to take punishment and dish it out, kind of like my recollection of Latter-day Foreman sure. was. I mean, I'm not old enough to know early days Foreman. Maybe he was the same way then. He was just such a big, burly dude that he was able to take punishment and plow through it. But you watch Ving Raim's, He's not a fast guy he's supposed to be the huge burly powerhouse kind of guy tyson's an interesting comparison because he was not tall but he was a strong dude but he was also lightning fast Mm -hmm. that's not rames that we see in this movie my impression of him was it was going to be this slow powerful boxer in vin rames versus more of the muhammad ali-esque dodge kind of fighter in wesley snipes We kind of got that, but then it devolved very quickly into a Rocky style, you ain't so bad, hit me harder kind of stuff, a la Rocky Three, except not done as well. (laughs) Of course not, yeah.
1: Reims, I thought, towered over Snipes. I thought he he was supposed to be a lot bigger. Certainly he is when it comes to muscle and bulk. He's bigger than Snipes. That's indisputable. But I looked it up. According to the IMDB, Reims is 5'11". Oh. I thought he'd be six one, six two, maybe even more, but it says 5'11", and Snipes is 5'9". So Snipes isn't tall, but Rames is the average height of a man, then. Snipes is a little below it, and Rames is basically average. I would have thought he'd be, from Pulp Fiction and even the Mission Impossible movies and so many other things he's done, this monster, but he's not actually. Maybe they just film him that way in all these other movies.
0: I don't really have any association with Bing Rames being, aside from, like you said, a pretty burly guy, him being tall necessarily, but in this movie in particular, they definitely shoot him, a lot of low angles, a lot of shots where they probably have him propped up somehow on the set, because he towers over pretty much everybody, not just Wesley Snipes in this movie. Yeah. Any, any of these confrontation scenes that he's got going on in the prison, he's always the biggest, most imposing presence, even amongst the other prisoners that are supposed to be big, imposing, tough-looking guys. I'm shocked to hear he's only 5'11". I would have guessed easily 6'1", 6'2", and then shot to make him look even taller than that in the movie. Credit to the filmmaker then, because I believed the entire way that he was a legitimately huge guy, Mm -hmm. strong, but only 5'11", then good job. The camera work was good. We did say, maybe a minute or two ago, the
1: Mike Tyson comparison, Mm -hmm. that's the nutshell. This is the Mike Tyson story, because the Iceman, George Chambers, is in jail for rape. He says he didn't do it, and we never really get
0: resolution on that. No, we don't. As soon as we got that subplot introduced about here's the most famous boxer, he says most famous man in the world, sent to jail for a crime he denies committing, but everybody else believes he did, then I'm like, yes, it's Mike Tyson. And this was one of the first, not the only, but one of the first instances of this movie introducing a concept that it does nothing to try to pay off. Well, no, they bring it back a few times, but they don't actually, you're right, pay it off. Yeah, they bring it back, and this confused me like nothing else. There are a lot of things about this movie that confused me. You had given me a DVD to watch, I turned off the DVD, I sat and I stared for about 30 seconds, and I'm (laughs) like, what did I just watch? What just happened over the last 90 minutes? Because this felt less like a coherent script turned into a movie, and more like a bunch of writers asking each other in high squeaky voices whether or not it would fly if they introduced concepts. What protagonist accused of a crime he didn't commit what if we comment a little bit on social injustice for the rich <laughs> none of that has ever paid off they introduce all these concepts i think did vin Graves' character actually commit this crime and if he did did he pay any penalty for it because we get those scenes over and over of the victim talking about how her life was ruined she seems sincere also. too she seems utterly sincere but we never get any resolution to that We get Ving Rhames convicted of the crime. His lawyers are supposed to be fighting it, but we never hear anything on that front. Instead, his prison sentence is commuted because of the fight with Wesley Snipes, and he just goes on to have another huge prize bout for the championship, which he wins back again. Less
1: than a year later after he went in jail, he's a champion again.
0: So is that meant to be a commentary about how the rich and powerful can get away with anything I think that might
1: be part of it, yeah.
0: I think it is too, but it feels half-hearted and unearned. And likewise, we get Wesley Snipes, who I think killed his wife's lover. Yeah. So he's Not a, wife, girlfriend, but yes. But he's supposed mm-hmm. to be our protagonist that we like for some reason? And it's not like in Con Air. Not a movie I like very much, but it's one of those things
1: too. Like Shawshank, as much as I love Shawshank, he also gets railroaded and it's unrealistic that mm-hmm. Andy Dufresne or the character that Cage plays in Con Air would go to jail and the kinds of jails they go to, the Cage character was defending his wife. Yes. So you would probably never get the kind of sentence he got.
0: Maybe like manslaughter or right. something. If you've gone above and beyond what was reasonable to defend yourself. But I bring it up because what Monroe did in this case was a jealous thing.
1: It was oh, yeah. an act of rage. Was, what do you call that? A um, crime of passion. That's what it is. He uncle Leo'd
0: this guy. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> 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 no, maybe it's not what you think. Hello. <laughs> and then he beat him to death with a baseball bat. So
1: it's not like Cage's character in Con Air, where no. you're defending. Her honor, this guy wasn't raping her. He was with her and she right. wanted it to happen. So it was more like the Andy Dufresne thing in Shawshank. Exactly. And he's staying in jail for good. He just got his sister an awful lot of money and obviously pride for himself. The end of the movie, we're giving it away now, is that he's won this bout. He's now 69. He <laughs> hee. And oh, and he beat the champ. But then the champ and his people are saying, nothing like that happened. And they say very specifically in the film, you're not going to record this. So right. no one officially would ever know this happened. Everybody in jail does. But who cares about that? Because these guys are in
0: jail. To me, it feels like a movie that could have happened with Wesley Snipes, Ving Rhames, and maybe one other character like a Michael Rooker character or the ring announcer guy. And that's all you really need because the other characters come in and out of the movie and they say and do things without any real impact on the plot or meaning. All it is is just one 90-minute elaborate setup to try to have two guys fight in prison. But there's a
1: lot of things in this movie, and you keep saying 90 minutes. It's about 93, exactly. It's almost, well, the credits, it actually would be less than 90 minutes, probably. They do jam a lot of concepts in, and you're right. They don't really need to have as many as they do. There are some great old boxing films. I think I mentioned The Setup a few times, The Setup by Robert Wise. Robert Ryan plays the main character. I think it's an hour and 12 minutes long, but it tells a complete and really good story, and it's a very vivid film. Now, it's a whole different thing because it's so old, but maybe Undisputed has too much stuff in it. And I suggested we do this because, A, it's 20 years old. I like the fives and the zeros for the podcast, if we can do that. But also because I remember liking this movie quite a lot. I think I liked it more than you did this time, too. But I didn't like it as much as I had before, maybe because I've seen so many movies since. And this probably just surprised me. I like Walter Hill. He's a pretty good director. He wrote this with David Geiler, who worked with him on a ton of things. Mm -hmm. They produced all the aliens, and they both wrote Alien 3. Okay, like so Hill would have directed off, the yeah. first one, but I think he thought, this isn't really my kind of thing, but I'll be involved as a producer. And then, of course, Ridley Scott and later on James Cameron made them such a legendary series. Sure, But he's made his career of doing that. He's made his own movies lots of times as a director, but as a producer, he's made enough money just with the alien stuff.
0: So you got to believe that this is something that he did as a director because he really liked the story. If you're saying this is a man who's made already in the industry, didn't need to direct movies necessarily... One of the things that confused me about this movie is the number of recognizable faces I saw in it. Beyond Rames, beyond Snipes, you've got Peter Falk, you've got Fisher Stevens, you've got young Michael Rooker, and a bunch of other actors whose names I would never be able to pull out of a hat. But I go, oh yeah, I know you. And that makes sense if Walter Hill is a guy with some pull in the industry and some ability to get funding for a movie. If that's his status in Hollywood in the turn of the 90s turned aughts, and he's trying to get this movie made... This has got to be something he believed in, that he liked, and he wanted to get behind the camera and direct. And that just makes me more confused by the end product. What was the plot of this movie? I already said the plot is basically just an excuse to get these two guys in the ring at the end of it. But what character went through any development of any kind? The in this main movie? two guys don't, for sure. What is the dramatic arc that gets resolved? There isn't really any. You feel like it's pointless, then? I really do. Okay. Falk might be the character that has the most benefit out of the whole movie because he gets to see the fight he really wanted in prison before he died. And he made a lot of money off the fight. I guess, but then he immediately dies anyway. So Three like, weeks later, <laughs> left
1: the money to his guy who has the voiceover at the end. felt anticlimactic the way they did that, too. It felt very funny
0: to me the way they did that because you get this big climactic fight. Yeah. One more thing. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm gone. Yeah. And I leave my handler $2 million. As ah. you wish. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier in the movie, when we're introduced to Peter Falk's character and we're introduced to the Hispanic guy that's handling him, looking after him, making sure he's comfortable in prison, we get a couple of scenes between that Hispanic handler whose name I totally forget. Chewy, isn't it? I don't know how many times they actually say his name. That's why I'm having trouble pulling it up. Well, John Seda, I think they say that. I name, think that's his character. Plays yeah. him. Let's see at the very
1: end here. The plot on Wikipedia. I think it's supposed to be Chewy. We're Chewy. going to say it's Chewy. I think we're correct there. Okay. He was in another boxing movie 10 years before called Gladiator, so not the Russell Crowe film.
0: That character acted fine. I've got no Mm -hmm. issue with the performance. Pretty sympathetic guy, too. Pretty sympathetic guy. Again, we don't know what he's in for, as far as I can recall. But earlier in the movie, we get mob guys showing up to the prison saying, hey, we're paying you and your boss a lot of money to make sure our guy is comfortable in jail because he's supposed to be like an old mob boss, right, Peter Falk? I guess the Hispanic gang is protecting him in this prison. And so there's a lot of money flowing from the mob to this guy already. And then at the end of the movie, Peter Fox like, yeah, I'm going to leave you $2 million. It doesn't matter that 15 minutes prior, we had this long thing from the mob guy saying how much I love money. I coveted money. Every dime I ever earned, I kept, and I stashed away around the different places I lived. I'm going to give it to you anyway. This makes no sense.
1: Leaving all- it to him when he dies, okay. But yeah, he's saying it that he's going to before he knows he's going to die. Yeah,
0: and nobody was asking the question, but what happened to Chewie? What about Chewie, Ryan? I hope he's okay. I hope his family is going to be monetarily set up for life after this movie's over. But they are. But Just they like are. Wesley
1: Snipes' sister will be taken care of now, finally. Yeah. All right, let's backtrack and I'll do all kinds of numbers and mm-hmm. stuff here. So, jailhouse sock. The jailhouse sock my fake title, was re- I made it up, it was released 20 years ago by Miramax, so Harvey Weinstein was involved in this, yeah. on August 23rd, 2002. It barely broke even, although the budget wasn't huge, so it's not like Miramax was throwing chairs around because this was a mediocre performer at the box office. Well, no more chairs being thrown around the Weinstein's office than usual. Yes. As for the Rotten Tomatoes numbers, they're not the greatest, not awful, but 48% of critics liked the film, 5.4 to 10 was the average or is the average. There are 106 reviews on the site and 46% of audiences. It was 140th that year at the box office, 140. The Rookie, which we covered a couple of months ago, was number 37. And Blue Crush, which we also covered this year, was 62nd. And Peter Falk, Colombo, did that character on TV forever. Grandfather in Princess Bride, as you wish. And so many other character movies he made in the 70s with John Cassavetes. He was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor at the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards.
0: What did you think of his performance?
1: Well, hang on, before we do, let me mention four other names, because they're all pretty well-known, and some of them are legends. Were then, certainly are now. Hayden Christensen, not a legend, but he took home the prize for his splendid work in Attack of the Clones. Fair. Christopher Walken was nominated for The Country Bears. John Malkovich for Knockaround Guys, which I think I saw. And Randy Mm -hmm. Quaid was nominated for The Adventures of Pluto Nash. But those are pretty big names in that Stinker's Bad Movie Awards category of Best Supporting or Worst Supporting Actor.
0: You didn't think Peter Falk was all that bad? He was overdoing it.
1: Maybe that's why he was recognized with the stinkers thing.
0: He really was over the top. It felt like Columbo, if Columbo was on a bender and just started dropping F-bombs left and right. There, there was that fuck
1: monologue, that's true.
0: Which was very funny because... Fucking, 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 fucking. Now we have an E. I just recently watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles again. I watched it last night. Anyway. We're recording this on the American Thanksgiving, so yeah. And of course there's that famous scene where uh i want a "A fucking fucking car car right fucking now now. that's great right and that works so brilliantly and this it's just peter Falk going fucking 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 fucking, fucking." why is he so mad all of a sudden there was no explanation for it it just cuts to him on this long rambling rant about something we never really learned much of anything about this character anyway wasn't that when the fight's supposed to be off the warden is going to call it off because of some of the
1: chicanery going on but then falk threatens him and his family And it's never said, I think Walter Hill would say, the dialogue of the film is telling you without actually telling you that the warden's saying, well, I'm going on vacation and he's threatening my family either there or anywhere. Fine, have your fight. I wasn't going to be here anyway. I'm still not going to be here. I don't give that much of a shit. But he was trying to say it was off, but he's being threatened
0: by this mob guy. That element of it, I knew. Isn't that why he was swearing though? Because the warden had said the fight was off. Oh, I thought that was a different scene. I could be wrong. I could be wrong too. My brain just apparently shunted it. Well, you've got...
1: All kinds of things going on again. I'm a little bit surprised you're able to make it today. And I watched this, like I've said before, I think it was Ford versus Ferrari or maybe Rush that I liked a lot, but I was really distracted for a while. Same with this. I was a little bit distracted trying to do five other things and thinking about the evening dinner and whatnot. So I may have missed a point there, too. Oh, you know what? All this time in the podcast, you're about to take a sip of something. You have booze for the first time in a I while. I do. Jameson Cooper's Crows? Or is Cooper's it Crows. crows. Is pronounced Crows? All right. A Crows is a tool that a cooper uses to make a barrel. Okay. So it's a,
0: an Irish whiskey, right? And we are now in late November posting this, though, in December. I'm yeah. just drinking water. The roles have been reversed here. Usually I'm on the one with the water or decaffeinated green teas. That's right. Um, we were talking about the, in my eyes anyway, inexplicable Peter Falk F-bomb rant. We've got the fight that is on and then there's a jail fight riot thing and the warden basically says, okay, the fight's off again. There's two things about that that cracked me up. I'm going to start with the later scene when the warden is being told the story that's basically threatening to blow his family up, right? Mm-hmm. He turns to Michael Rooker's character and says, are you going to let them threaten me like that? And Michael Rooker just goes, hey, I don't want to be blown up in a car. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> that's fair. That is one of the most honest character moments in this whole movie. If I was a jail guard and there was a mob boss basically saying, let the fight go ahead or I'm going to blow you up, and then Warden turned to me, I'd be like, hey, buddy, you're on your own. I'm not going to get blown up so you can kibosh a jail fight. I think Rooker also
1: likes his setup here. I think he probably gets a lot of money under the table. He's the referee for these fights. The very first one, the movie opens, the very first thing we see is Monroe winning, I guess it would be a 68th fight. That's right. And Rooker's in the ring with them the way a referee normally is, but because this fight has got the different rules, there's nobody in
0: the ring with them. That's he's right. He's just basically the timekeeper ringing the bell. I think there's that element of it, too. It's that he's got a good thing going, he wants to keep it up. But prior to that, during the brawl that breaks out that leads to the warden saying, fights off, guys, yeah. Rooker shows up in the middle of it with, I guess, all the jail guards kitted out in, like, the SWAT gear or whatever, right? And he says, Shoot the ceiling! Shoot the ceiling! And then we just get shots of them blowing out the lights in the ceiling, the sprinklers going off and stuff. Wouldn't making it dark when you are wildly outnumbered mm. and you're trying to corral things, and wet for that matter, wouldn't that make your life harder as the prison guards, not easier? Probably. We never see how that resolves, right? We hear them scream, shoot the ceiling. We see a couple shots of literally shooting out the lights and then it cuts to the next scene and it's over. <laughs> Why was that the plan of the attack? Why was it not subdue them or get on the ground? It was shoot out the lights, guy.
1: <laughs> feels like the movie could have been longer than it was, too. And that would have been better explained if they had yes. maybe five or ten more minutes of footage. And they still have a pretty short movie if it's an hour and 40.
0: This movie felt a lot, and this is contrary to most of my complaints about the movie. This one's watched, rushed, though. This was rushed. It felt like they shot a lot of stuff and then they took out chunks that explained a lot of the other things that actually were kept in the movie. And that's why so much of it, I was like, why is that here? What's going on there? It feels like there was an alternate ending, too, where Ving Rhames' character doesn't get out of prison. Maybe he admits to his crime after he loses the fight. He was never going to admit to that crime. I don't know. Even if he did do it, he wouldn't admit to it. In reality, you're absolutely right. I'm just trying to apply how do we get some sort of resolution to a character in this movie or a plot in this movie, and that's the only way I can think to do it. Otherwise, why do you have these repeated scenes of the victim testifying to the trauma of the act? Why do you have this character deny, deny, deny while being a total asshole to everyone around him? He actually admits to it. He admits to the act. He just, in a very early 2000s understanding of what sexual assault can be, mm-hmm. he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we had sex. She was with my entourage on a private plane. All that happened, but she wanted it. And meanwhile, the victim's like, I felt unsafe and I couldn't say no because I was in a group of five burly dudes, with me and my two friends. Any viewer now, I think, says, yeah, you were coerced. It's just you weren't screaming no because you were worried that he was going to beat you senseless if you did. But it was still a non-consensual act.
1: Most reasonable people would say even now, especially women, I think generally guys would, too, that even if everything is going great, she's loving everything. But if she says anywhere in there, no, stop, you really are supposed to just mid-thrust or mid-whatever you're doing, pull away. Oh, absolutely. It's a big ask. But that's expected of men at this point, and it's not that unreasonable to ask that. No. Most women are never going to go that way anyway. It's not going to be, all right, everything's awesome, and I think it's fine, and I don't think I'm wrong, but then you are. You're not misreading that so much. Bab and I recently covered Basic Instinct, mm. and when he's with Jean Triplehorn, she says no, and it's not no, don't fuck me. It's no, don't do it like this. Yeah. So no is no, but he does it anyway. So he does rape this person that he otherwise cared about and somebody he had sex with before. And I think I mentioned that podcast, Mike Tyson there too, which is even I thought that way in the mid to early 90s, whenever that happened, I think it was the early 90s, mm-hmm. that she invited him upstairs was the middle of the night. There's a bit by Robert Wool, I think is his name, the guy from Batman and Bull Durham, the pitching coach in Bull Durham, the one that has the little thing about candlesticks making a nice gift. Let's get to that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, He had a comedy bit on one of those comic relief things where he said, of course he's going to fuck you at three in the morning. He fucked me at three in the morning. <laughs> That's the way the general public, especially men, thought back in the early 90s, and maybe even in 2002. Doesn't make it right, and we probably wouldn't think that way now, certainly not the majority of us, but I think that's what's going on with Rames' character. But if he's supposed to be guilty, and I think showing her so often, including maybe in the last 25, 30 minutes again, where she sits down with another news outlet, the movie might as well be saying, she's really doubling down on this, so she really must mean it which means he probably did it, which means we're rooting for a rapist
0: versus a murderer. And we are supposed to be rooting for whom? There's nobody in this movie I wanted to root for at all. We always compare to Rocky, I think, whenever we talk about boxing, because Rocky is the boxing franchise everybody knows and has most likely seen if you've ever seen a boxing movie. We
1: compare most sports movies we cover, period, to Rocky. (laughs)
0: Later sports movies mostly copied the Rocky formula for underdog stories. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about it when I was watching this movie from a number of different perspectives. And one of the ones was exactly what you just talked about. Who am I supposed to root for in this movie? Because it doesn't matter how good the boxing action is or isn't. If I don't care about either one of these fighters, what emotional impact is this fight going to have on me? The putative protagonist in this movie is a murderer. And I think about the villains in the Rocky movies, right? You've got Apollo Creed, who is as... Not a villain. Well, he's an antagonist, if nothing else. If not a villain. He is one of the most sympathetic antagonists you can hope for in a sports movie. He's a great character. Clubber Lang is not a sympathetic character in any way he should perform, but you watch him and you can see he's just the guy that nobody gave any credit to and he's trying to make his way in the world. He's doing it the wrong way, but you kind of understand that and you're rooting for Rocky because he's the underdog with the heart of gold. We don't get any of that here. I wanted Ving Rhames to lose because he behaves like an asshole from the first scene to the end of the movie. It doesn't matter who he's dealing with. The movie, I thought, pretty explicitly admitted that he did it. This is why I mentioned the early aughts understanding of what rape was and what was consent and what wasn't. Because I thought the movie was going to, at the end of it, say, no, your charge got thrown out because she admitted that she had sex with you. To the movie's credit, they never absolved Ving Rhames of guilt. They never said you were acquitted or anything, right?
1: Even though we would say now that even if she had sex and it seemed like it was willing, that still could have been
0: rape. So he's a vile, despicable character. And so I was just left watching these vignettes and these scenes unfold. And then by the end of it, when the prisoners are cheering, that great fight we saw, and they're all cheering Monroe in his cell, and he's supposed to be a stoic hero, I guess? Okay, well, I don't really care that he won. It's not like in winning, he has redeemed himself somehow. I guess his family gets money. Whatever. I don't care. I'll be a hero, March. To who? To those weirdos in the worm store. That's
1: basically <laughs> He's right. He's the hero to these other criminals. Yeah. Most of them, well, maybe not most, but a hell of a lot of them did the crime they're in jail for. Some probably didn't, as we know. There's a lot of people in jail that shouldn't sure. be there. But they do show, and this is an interesting touch, that we see the text on the screen for what everyone's in jail for. And we know that... Snipes and Rames, well, Snipes at least, did the thing they're in jail for. Yeah. I bet a lot of the rest of them did too. So then you've got these assholes who think he's a god, but then no one else knows it even happened. They could tell people, but you might not believe them.
0: And then we get the end scene for some reason where we have to see Ving Rhames' character succeed again. Okay, I guess you're trying to comment on the Maybe it's a
1: cynical movie then. Maybe Walter Hill's being cynical saying what you said, Indigo, that this asshole gets what he wants. And he wasn't even in jail for years. He was in jail for a matter of months. Well, it might have been less because if he won the title 11 months later.
0: Oh, you're right. Well, 11
1: months later may have been from that fight. I thought maybe 11 months later suggested from when he first went into jail. Whatever it was, though. It wasn't even two years from the, when the movie started to when he wins the title again. I think it was less than a year of time he Probably served. Probably was, yeah. And wait a minute. If they're
0: not going to tell anything about the fight, that that was the deal, Here then you... why is he out of jail? Yeah, there it is. Publicly, why is he out of jail? That was the other what the hell moment for me, too, is because you're absolutely right. We never really hear what his sentences in years that I can recall, like how many years he was sentenced to, but you got to believe that it's eight, ten, twelve years. Or three or five, anyway. Let's say three years. He gets out in less than a year. He didn't get the good behavior situation going on there. Right. That's why you get paroled. But we see in this movie, Ving Rames never has good behavior. And he's just starting fights left and right. On the topic of starting fights, did you laugh as much as I did? The first time he meets Wesley Snipes' character in jail, he just slaps The lunch him. line, yeah. Yeah. Let the man eat. Did you see the way that Ving Rames was eating that orange? He was eating it like an apple. The peel was taken away, and he was gouging the center of the orange out from the remaining peel. Who has ever eaten an orange that way? It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. I guess that being a character thing he'd wanted to do. That's one reason also
1: why this movie could work, and why I think I liked it more than you this time, and why I liked it, I think, quite a bit more many years ago, is you do have two charismatic and good actors in these two roles of despicable people. And one of the most famous, if not the most famous movie that Walter Hill ever directed has Nick Nolte, very likable, charismatic guy, Maybe not always the most likable, but a charismatic guy and a sure. great actor who's blatantly calling Eddie Murphy the N-word many times over. And when Murphy calls them on it, when they finally seem to be at least friendlier, they ain't partners, they ain't friends, that whole thing, but they're friendlier, Murphy calmly says, it ain't right, Jack. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the whole thing was, I got to keep you down because you're a convict. So this is what Hill does, I guess. He makes yeah. your protagonists, people that it's hard to like when the movie's over. I guess maybe that's a common thing for him. And 48 Hours is a damn good movie. It's funny. It's good action. But Nick Nolte, the character doesn't age well, and he's with a guy Mm -hmm.
0: who is in jail. It's not the worst crime. Murphy's not guilty of killing anybody. For a movie like this, I do think you have to have at least one character that you're rooting for. I like Wesley Snipes a lot. Whatever his off-camera problems might have been over the years... I like him on screen a lot. I think we talked about that during White Men Can Jump. But that was when he was more fun. And this, he's in his Blade 2 persona because he Just was tower. shooting Blade
1: 2 the same year as this. And I love Blade 2 of the way well, I liked it a lot, at least of all the. I didn't like the first Blade. And of course, no one likes Blade Trinity. Right. But I like Blade 2. That's Guillermo del Toro that yes. directed that film. But by then, he was, in most roles, I think, being that cool guy. He always wanted to be a Schwarzenegger type action star, it's almost mistake. monosyllabic. And he really got to be at that point. You mentioned White Men Can not Jump. Of course, Major League as well. He had so much personality Demolition in the Demolition Man. Demolition Man. He was a way better actor in that time frame. And he was making some damn good movies in the early 90s. And yeah. here, 10 years later, he's making
0: most movies the same way. So maybe he's not the most sympathetic in this movie, the way he plays right. it. The problem I had with him in this role was the same problem I think I had with Will Smith in Ali. You're a guy that I know can be charismatic and fun if you want to be. You don't have to be fun in this role, but you got to be charismatic. Because you're giving me nothing but dour stone face, monosyllabic kind of responses. And Ving Rhames, who I like fine. I've got no particular affinity for him, but he's fine. But his character is such a one-note jerk. I didn't get a lot of magnetism or screen presence necessarily off of either of them just because of those two performances. I had two leads that I thought I would enjoy a heck of a lot more because when you pitch this as a Wesley Snipes prison boxing movie, yes, I'm in. This will be a lot of fun to watch. And at the end of it, I was like, That wasn't fun. That felt like I watched nothing. What the heck just happened to me? (laughs) Now, I will say, Orange scene aside, where he's eating it like an apple, there was that fairly gratuitous shower scene between Snipes and Rames. Uh Fool me once, shame on you. You ain't going to slap me again kind of thing. They have their little standoff, their tete-a-tete, where they mouth off to each other. And then Ving Rames slowly walks away from the camera and it just stays on him for like a good 20 seconds. He's playing it naked. Yeah. (laughs) I swear he went to Walter Hill. He's like, listen, dude, I worked out hard for this role. My ass looks great. Get me some screen time on these buns, okay? Because it just sticks with his slow walk away. and Nothing comes of it.
1: Verisimilitude. They're in the shower. They really are naked. I guess you could have that dick cup thing that they have. But what's the point? Usually you have that if you have a sex scene with the lady. And this movie has almost no women in it. There's a few. Actually, the woman who does play the rape victim, if that's what she is, we think she is. She's a very pretty woman. But it's hard to see her in those terms because of what her character is supposed to be. If you like guys, whether you be a woman or a gay man, there's a lot of things you can get turned on in this movie, especially considering they're half naked or in this case, all naked. Yeah, but otherwise a... for scoring factor, no. <laughs> if you are a <laughs> an heterosexual man
0: This is a negative scoring factor yeah, in this movie, just because based, based got, on the
1: content the most beautiful woman is a victim. Yeah. The boxing itself and It's we, about a third of the film. The whole build up. The psych up stuff. Yeah. The match itself and the aftermath, that's not really the boxing, I guess. So maybe not quite a third, but it's definitely a full quarter of the film.
0: It's a good long chunk. And there were a few elements of that I did like. One thing we don't often get a ton of in these types of movies, and this includes Rocky movies, is we don't get, okay, you've got 20 or 30 minutes before the fight's going to start. Here's what we're going to do to get you ready. And we get the two different approaches. The Fisher Stevens scumbag character, he doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, Fisher Stevens, but God love the guy. Nobody looks like a grimier scumbag than Fisher Stevens when he wants to. We get him warming up Wesley Snipes. We get the pro trainer warming up Ving Rhames. And they've got two different approaches and two different attitudes towards it. But I thought that was kind of cool because we joke sometimes about the Rocky movies where the guys come out and just instantly pouring sweat. They're just glistening head to toe. But one of the things they talked about in this movie is, we're going to get you out into warm-up 20 minutes before because we want to get you loose. We want to do some running and jogging. We never really see that. But yeah, of course, they're on the bike. They're shadow boxing, They're doing whatever to get loose. And they're probably sweating already from that. That was cool. And the fight itself, for the most part, I thought was okay. Biggest downfall that this had for me was the sound work. It was overdone. And no movie, or no movie franchise, I should say, has cornier fight sequences than Rocky does. A lot of fights, especially in the early Rockies, you can see the gloves of the two guys stop like a good four inches away Mm -hmm. from the face and you still get the 80-yard pow, Mm -hmm. pow, 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 right? This movie had a lot of that too, though. There was a lot of punches thrown, especially by Ving Rhames, where you could just see the glove whiff past Wesley Snipes by like a good four to five inches and you still get the meat slap, pow. But I thought the fighting itself, pretty good. I thought it was too. Yeah. Yeah. And they look believable enough as boxers. I do wish they had dressed them up with more physical damage early in the fight yeah. because they set up the small gloves, is going to hurt more kind of stuff. So give him more cuts, give him a little bit more fake blood on the face or whatever. The
1: London Prize rules thing, too, is that when you get hit and go down, that ends the round, and you've got 60 seconds yes. to recover. So it's actually Monroe who gets hit more often and is down for the count. Not down for the count, I guess it's not the way that works, but he's down and the round ends, yeah. But because he gets an opening, he's cut! I always loved that in Rocky Four when the moment that Rocky's <laughs> hand hits Drago's head, you hear Duke say, he's cut! <laughs> but what happens in that fight, more importantly in Rocky Four is that that's when Rocky finally starts doing damage to Drago. And when Monroe gets his opening in this film, same thing. He finally starts doing damage to the pro. Well, he was a pro too, but he hasn't been for a long time. And he's outmatched by the world champion until he's not. And then he ends up winning the fight only twice in his entire life now. As a boxer, does Iceman go down once to end a round and then at the end of the fight he does get knocked out by the undisputed guy He's going to stay in prison. And that, by the way, should have given away who'd win this fight. I don't know if they ever say he's Monroe Undisputed Hutchin, unless it's just at the very end of the film. But if they did, that would give away the fact that the movie's called Undisputed, so I guess he's going to win.
0: Yeah, I think the only time they actually say that entire phrase is at the end of the movie, after he beats Iceman. But the whole title of the movie is meant to be a smear on ice man because he declares himself the undisputed champion of the world to end the movie even Mm -hmm. after we see monroe i guess it's not after we see monroe because then we get the scene of the prisoners laughing about it and calling Mm -hmm. monroe undisputed and it's just supposed to be that play on the fact that they refuse to acknowledge the prison fight ever happening and that ving rames was ever knocked down in Mm -hmm. his career the london prize rules as a concept was kind of cool too I do wish they'd made more use of that also. Wesley Snipes being a big, strong dude, but still noticeably smaller than Ving no, Rhames. Big big's debatable. He's muscular, man. Muscular, like, yeah. It's not big, though. Not in the same league as Ving Rames, certainly. I would have liked to have seen his character play that to his advantage more. Because there's no breaks in the rounds until somebody gets knocked down, have Wesley Snipes dance around Ving Rames a little bit longer, tire him out. Because like you said earlier, you've got the Muhammad Ali kind of approach that I thought Wesley Snipes was going to employ. The foreman
1: for Iceman.
0: Exactly, and then they went more the Rocky Three route of let's just punch each other in the face until one of us falls down kind of stuff. I'm sure Walter Hill wouldn't want to invite comparisons to the Rocky franchise, but it would have been fun if Wesley Snipes told Iceman at some point, "Ain't so bad, ain't (laughs) Ain't so bad, (laughs) nothing." Yeah, (laughs) that would have been a fun little nod. But then you get people like us saying, "We're doing it anyway." Yeah, it's (laughs) true
1: enough. Twenty years later, you mentioned the trainer. So that is Dayton Callie playing Yank Lewis, that's Iceman's trainer. He has a line that I wrote down. It's not an incredible line, but it's so goddamn true. He says, the fans pay your bills and don't you ever forget it. I'm always impressed when athletes or entertainers ever thank the crowds and the audiences and the fans because so many of them don't do that. And that's why they're so rich, because regular people care about them enough to pay money for them to have multimillion dollar mansions. And they should never forget that. And I like the line by Yank to say that. You're rich and famous because of the fans.
0: Well, apparently he's famous, but not rich, because we get that whole thing where apparently he's millions of dollars in debt. Well, he could be rich and famous. Yes,
1: yeah. Like a lot of boxers, he didn't take care of his money.
0: Did we really need that particular sub-thread thrown in here, too, where he owes the IRS money? I'm sure the character would have been happy to have this fight against Monroe Hutchins just to get out of jail early. We didn't need any added incentive from like a monetary perspective of it. Now, I understand that you've got a litany of athletes and in particular boxers that have blown hundreds of millions of dollars while still fighting. I get that. So it's not impossible. But just before we get Ving Rhames sent to prison, we're told that his most recent fight gated 300 million in pay-per-view alone. And if you win your fights, usually you get the majority of that purse, right? At least half. At least half. So hard for me to believe that this was his most recent fight when he probably made at least $100 million, and he's already broke? <laughs> what have you done? How many mansions do you need? How big is your entourage? I mean, how many escalates do you That's part you of why yeah. people
1: do go broke, because they give away so much money. They're doing the right thing. They're doing something they probably dreamed about doing most of their life, and now they can, but they stretch themselves too thin. Yeah. So Wesley Snipes, we've covered him so many times before. I feel like I've missed something, but I've got Major League written down here, White Man Can't Jump, and The Fan he was in wildcats which we haven't covered but i feel like there's something else i'm missing but anyway there's no. three before and now four that's still five sports movies he did at least with the wildcats film which maybe we'll do one day bing Raim's such a badass no other sports films i can see on his resume but of course pulp fiction and the mission impossible franchise where he shows a lot of personality and humor he doesn't come yes. across as the badass and two years earlier in pulp fiction that's all he is is the tough badass west Studi, who does play mingo He's the one in the cell with Iceman. Oh, yeah. And Iceman at first does the state of my way and we'll be fine. And actually, Iceman does warm up to him and they become friendly. And he's also in his corner with Yank, meaning studios. Michael Rooker. Somewhat wasted in this movie. I think you said young Michael Rooker, but he'd been around for a long time. Eight Men Out, we covered that. That was 14 years earlier, and Days of Thunder. He just
0: looks so young in this movie. The association I have with modern era Michael Rooker is, of course, Walking Dead, right? Where he looks like quite a bit of an old man. Yeah, he looks, understandably, for the content of the show, he looks haggard and old. And so when I watch this, even though it's not that long prior to Walking Dead, he looks like a baby by comparison. So (laughs) young Michael Rooker. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't have a lot to do, which is disappointing, because I like Michael Rooker. Basically, every time he's on screen, he does something fun, usually. And he did have a few fun moments in this. But other than that, what did he do in this movie? He rang the bell, I guess, and that's mm-hmm. about it, right?
1: I don't know if he's a Walter Hill veteran. Maybe he is, and it was a favor. Sometimes you'll see people sure. do roles, and you think, why well, in this movie? Oh, because they worked with the director three, four, five times before, and they want to do it again. And they'll take a lesser role. Yeah. Two other actors I want to mention, Dennis Arnt. And Bruce A. Young, because I mentioned Basic Instinct, Bev and I covered that very okay. recently. They're both in that. Arnt is Michael Douglas's boss, and Bruce Young is the black guy in that film. Well, obviously he's a black guy in this movie too. He didn't change color. But I love that guy's voice, Bruce Young's voice. Is he the ring announcer? That guy's annoying, by the way. We don't like the ring announcing in what was it? Halle Berry. Oh, Bruce Rice. Right, yes. I said that the woman in that was annoying. But no, I thought the guy who was narrating the whole thing, shut up, you don't have to talk yeah. every single second. No, but Bruce A. Young is the dude who's in prison laying everything down. He's in a meeting with Iceman maybe in the first 30 minutes or so. Not the most common name. I don't expect you to remember who he is, but he's not the ring announcer. Fair enough, okay. And then Dennis Arndt is the warden, but they're both in Basic Instinct as cops. Hill has directed some sports films, at least in a way. There's baseball in Brewster's Millions. So that's the film with John Candy and Richard Pryor. Pryor's yeah. a pitcher. And then also the baseball
0: gang and the Warriors.
1: Warriors come out to play.
0: So you're saying we are going to cover both Brewster's Millions and Warriors Well, maybe Brewster's Millions we should. I think
1: there's a decent amount of baseball in that. I know he has a big game deliberately spending money because he's yes. got to get rid of the money. That movie's fun. I saw it when I was a kid.
0: We've made more tangential connections to sports as excuses to cover them on this <laughs> podcast than that.
1: I mentioned that Guyler and Hill wrote this. They also produced it. There were 15 producers in total, and Snipes was an executive producer on it. One more name I want to mention, Stanley Clark, the composer, also composed for Boys in the Hood. A lot of movies with black casts. I was looking mm. at his resume, seemed like there's a ton of things like that. But also Little Big League, which has nothing to do with black people, but it is a sports film that we got to cover because I've only ever seen it once. And that fits your I M.O. of a movie
0: it. you saw when you were a kid. It was 94, I believe, so you were about 13 years old. I remember that movie coming out, but I think it missed me. I was a little bit too old to be interested in it at that mm-hmm. point, if memory serves. What were your thoughts ultimately on this movie? We've covered the elements of it that we noted individually, but you've already said you liked it a lot more first time seeing it. You still kind of liked it today. but
1: This is one of those times where I like it less after talking about it for about 45 minutes. I was going to say 6.5 out of 10. I think I'd have to give it at least a 6, which is still not a tremendous grade, but that would be just barely getting a fresh tomato on Rotten Tomatoes because I was entertained enough. Being short is a good thing. If the movie's not awesome, and if it's short, then you are getting through it <laughs> off the quick. There should have been more content, I guess. I do like the two lead actors and most things that they do, or yeah. not, maybe not most, but a lot of things they do. And it's a pretty simple story with too much shit in it, that is true. But it basically worked for me, but maybe I'm giving it more credit than I should for the nostalgia, because I thought going into this, I was going to like this more than I did. I thought I liked it a lot when I saw it probably on demand in 2003.
0: Ultimately, this movie failed for me. I liked the leads more in other movies oh that's definitely true my expectations of them were not met in this movie so that disappointed me and when i thought back on it i could not for the life of me wrap my head around what this movie actually accomplished by the end of it empty calories i guess right that's a great analogy this felt a lot like empty calories we've talked about a lot of movies that obviously we've both really liked those are easy to give high scores Mm -hmm. to we've talked about movies that i certainly hated and made me angry and i panned those up and down and i've got no problem getting the low scores I don't know what to give this movie because I wasn't angry at it. I thought there was a lot of stuff it tried to do, some cheap stuff it tried to manipulate. Using the black and white, you're trying to go for a gritty feel. Instead, it feels more like a cheap SVU episode on TV or something every time they did that. I don't know what to give this. I think you have to give it a four or less because you seem to like it and almost not at all. Let's go for it. I didn't come out of this saying, I hate the fact that I just watched that or Mm. I wish I had those 90 minutes back. That was a thing I watched. Fine was kind of my reaction and I couldn't really put any more thought to it than that. If you love boxing movies and you're a fan of Wesley Snipes and or Ving Raines, yeah, You really have to
1: see this then if you like all those things.
0: It's worth seeing because like you said, at the end of the day, it's 90 minutes. You're not in it for like two and a half hours, three hour epic mm-hmm. or anything like that. So give it a go, but it's empty calories. One of the reasons I wanted to see this too is that I do like Walter
1: Hill's films, generally speaking. Did Wild Bill with Jeff Bridges, Geronimo in the early 90s. I think that's one with Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall. I think Damon's in that as well. His resume is pretty good and this isn't bad by any means. But then again, no. the best film he ever directed is probably 48 Hours, and then this is not one of the best ones, but I think it's better than you thought it was. That's sure. Okay, we have one more podcast to end the year, we're going to stay in the physical sports. Well, they're all physical, but we're going to stay in the combat sports. This isn't really... Co- Never mind. It's not combat either. A sport that uses the hands. That's true. There you go. You saved me. Because we'll be covering our second arm wrestling movie this year, and only in about four months too. And I didn't know we'd review even one arm wrestling movie (laughs) going into this year, because we discussed Golden Arm back in early August, and we liked Golden Arm. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Unexpected. We hadn't seen it before. This time, it'll be the one where Sly Stallone has to win a game
0: of aggressive handshaking to get his son back in Over the Top. I'm just looking forward to this mostly for the inevitable Sly Stallone impressions I'll be (laughs) doing too many of them that's
1: why I suggest this because it's on Canopy this has got to be fun or something we can have fun with in a discussion if not both then one of those two things will be true
0: yeah this should be like a silly palate cleanser Mm -hmm. to end
1: the year so we're on Twitter I'm at MovieFiend51 Chris is at at ScoringAtMovies email address is ScoringAtTheMovies at at gmail.com and you can find all 118 episodes in any podcast avenue I think or certainly most of them Take her easy, Monroe Hutchin. You'll never be free again. But at least you beat the piss out of the heavyweight champion of the whole wide world.